You got tear me apart, Lisa! There are four words that some people live or die by. Best worst movie ever. That's right. Best worst movie ever. There's one movie that within the past 10 years has taken this title to a new level, even being dubbed the Citizen Kane of bad movies. We're talking about Tommy Wiseau's The Room, a movie so bad, so fraught with imperfections, it's used to teach aspiring filmmakers what not to do. Much like Shakespeare's Hamlet, the general public takes bad movies with a grain of salt. These are films with minimal budgets, undeveloped plots, novice actors, or directors trying to work outside Hollywood. Somehow, The Room transcends these traps and has become, well, a phenomenon. Midnight showings, crowd rituals, autobiographical novels, fans referring to themselves as roomies. Now, we're on the verge of a major motion picture about making The Room. All of this for a movie that's considered the best worst movie ever made. Before you can understand The Room, you have to understand the appeal of movies. Take Ryan for example. His love for film began with a family legend. For him, a horror classic began a lifelong love affair. I feel like my real film, like liking to know when film, how films were made was like when I started watching horror movies. Because, like, in my family, there was this legend that my Aunt Joy went to The Exorcist in 1973, and then she couldn't turn her lights off for a month. So there was always this, like, oh, that movie must be horrifying. It must be terrifying and scary. And so I'm going to rent this movie and watch it. And I watched it, and I thought, that was really good, and it was scary, but it wasn't... I couldn't understand why my aunt was that afraid, and I thought, maybe it has something to do with, like, atheism versus Christianity, but whatever. (laughs) From there, he was hooked. As a child of the 90s, walking to the local video store was a rite of passage. Every Tuesday, he would journey the top 10 video for its two for $2 special. For Ryan, he always gained something from watching movies. I find it interesting that there's an episode of Night Court where someone pleads their case and Bull says to um, the old lady who was the other bailiff, he's like, oh, cool story, huh? And she says, I laughed, I cried, it became a part of me. That's how I feel about movies. I feel like some people, It's purely entertainment. They see a movie, they're like, well, I'm done with that. I'm like, if I see a movie, like, I need to think about it. I need it to, like, how, what can I get out of this? No matter how silly the movie might be, it's like, what can I get out of this as a person? Yet, what can you gain from bad movies? I mean, they're bad movies. Productions where quality isn't a priority. So, how can you get anything out of them? These questions aren't answered easily. In fact, sometimes you need to turn to a higher power. In this case, my mom, Dixie, a self-proclaimed roomie, schooled us in the art of made-for-TV movies. Dubbed Monday Night Movies, these films became cornerstones of her childhood. A friend to die for, I Can Make You Love Me, or Twisted Desire, the list is endless. As she points out, these films hold one guiding principle. It's a train wreck factor. I mean, human nature. People tend to, you know, see that where someone's, you know, in the bad movie genre, trying so hard, overly dramatic acting that just made it, instead of just a bad movie, a really enjoyable bad movie to watch. Still shitty, but it had to have a certain B-list actor quality about it where they're really trying hard, but they're giving it a little too much. 
the Gary Busey movies that we love. You know, Busey's just way out there. His hair's disheveled. You know, he's trying. But, he, but, he's, <laughs> but that's what makes it so awesome. <laughs> it doesn't make me a good person that I like these, but my God, they're amazing. <laughs> when there's a train wreck factor, The Room is the lowest common denominator for bad movies. Issues with screenwriting, cinematography, blocking, sound design, and characterization, the movie has them all, yet, for some people, a larger issue remains. How does a movie so bad become so popular? Nate came into the room when he left home for college in 2008. For many freshmen, the college experience is about making friends, yet, Nate wasn't meeting people at frat houses. My freshman year of college, I was at the University of Minnesota Duluth. We are just freshmen making friends, hanging out with people. And I met this kid who, he liked to skateboard, he collected cassette tapes. He seemed pretty cool, and he had the soundtrack on CD. I had two other roommates, and he showed it all of us. He had already seen it multiple times, so he got to basically watch our reactions, which is something I like to do with the movie now, just kind of pass it on to new people. But, yeah, our first reactions were just, this is insane, this is hilarious, why are these people acting like this, what is this movie? Like, there are just all these questions running through my mind, and I had never been so, like, fascinated with a bad movie before. Nate's foray into the room came at the right time. As his freshman year winded down, the movie went from a joke among friends to a midnight sensation. When you have four 18-year-old dudes who just moved out of their parents' houses all together in a room watching this, it's kind of like we shared this feeling of being uncomfortable together. And it kind of like brought us together in a way. Like we made it through this fucked up part of the movie. So like we can make it through anything in life, you know? When I saw the movie in freshman year of college, that same year Adult Swim played it for the first time on April Fools at midnight. And I kind of want to say this was like the height of the room's popularity. I guess at the time or up until then, Um, they played the movie at midnight. And then a couple weeks later, I want to say the Tim and Eric awesome show episode with Tommy Wiseau came out. So this was after months of us showing the movie to all of our friends. We were just obsessed with it. And it just seemed like everything was falling into place. So I kind of, I want to say that kind of kick-started into where it is now. Nate is right. Within the first five years of the movie's release, it went from a $2,000 box office run to an international sensation. It seemed anyone who was anyone jumped on the bandwagon. Hollywood comedy powerhouses like Paul Rudd, David Wayne, and David Cross proclaimed its aloof greatness. Anniversary screenings became national events. Even today, Wiseau makes appearances at room-related social events. For all the hype about the movie, it's difficult to say what The Room is even about. In short, it centers on Johnny and Lisa's seven-year relationship falling apart when Lisa and Johnny's best friend Mark start having an affair. From that point on, it's anyone's game. For all the characters and subplots that seemingly go nowhere, that's what roomies enjoy about the film. As Dixie points out, there's a certain pleasure from the movie's spontaneity. The characters um, come in randomly, not always introduced. The dialogue randomly jumps from one subject to another. They can be practically mid-sentence, 
And suddenly it's, oh, how's your sex life? <laughs> when they're talking about the bank. Or <laughs> there is all these random, bizarre things. The football playing, the when they taunt each other, cheap, cheap, cheap. There's maybe a three-minute segue where suddenly Denny owes this drug dealer money and he's been doing drugs. And two civilians grab the, the drug dealer who has who is armed, drag him off, two minutes later they're back, you don't hear another word about it. It's that kind of stuff. There's randomness in this movie. This randomness produces many unexpected results. And milling the room into something good is easy from a certain point of view. Noel came into movies in 1977, which may not be an important year for some folks, but for Noel, it was huge. It was the summer of Star Wars. It was the year he met David Prowse in his Darth Vader costume. It was the beginning of a lifelong journey into films. In fact, he even guided Ryan, Dixie, and Nate as customers when he managed Suncoast Motion Picture Company, a once cherished monument for movie collectors. Noel reminds us that sometimes bad movies are just mislabeled. Sometimes the bad, the movies that are considered bad or terrible are just not falling Hollywood standards. So it's something different. It, it is, uh, you know, the, the bad horror films, all of the, the, a lot of the ones in the 80s that were ripoffs of Friday the 13th or, or whatever, none of them were Hollywood films. So, uh, but aren't considered good films. They don't have the restraint or the rules of I need to have this, this, and this in my movie in order for it to be, to be a Hollywood film. So I can pretty much do any movie that I want. You know, we've had uh, great geniuses like Toby Hooper and, uh, you know, the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't follow any rules like that at all. That's like being taken somewhere and saying, do you want to see something? that you shouldn't see, and you say, yeah. So with, with that, I mean, you have, you know, movies that didn't want to follow Hollywood standards, that went out and did their thing, and they did it well. And then you have this movie that is outside of Hollywood, but it doesn't do that. It doesn't do anything and well. What's the appeal then for this type of movie? Quotable. It's the same thing with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Everyone uh, goes, if you have ever seen it in the theater, ever seen it in a midnight showing, it is a carnival. It is fun. It is a, a bad movie that everyone participates. And a bad movie is, is a whole different thing if it's quotable, because I've seen thousands of bad movies, and I've only seen three or four quotable ones, to where, I mean, you immediately have six things in your head afterward. Knowing the rules and knowing how to break them is a difficult skill to master. From turning up the degree of graphic violence in 1968 with Night of the Living Dead, to producing a 164-page script in 2010 with The Social Network, breaking the rules can produce quality films. As Ryan points out, movies are subjective, but even the room can fall flat against titans like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. There's certain people with the Rocky Horror Picture Show who say like, oh, you should go see it. It's great because the movie is so bad. I don't think Rocky Horror Picture Show is a bad movie. I think it's actually a really good movie. It just is for a specific audience or a specific mood. But like The Room, if if I was trying to think like, what would I say is so terrible about this movie? But you can't put your finger on one thing. It's like everything is terrible about this movie. And I feel like it's almost like, I wouldn't say it's infuriating, but you get to this point where you're like, I need to write everything down that I'm complaining about. And then you're like, I have eight pages of stuff to complain about, but it's not really complaints because it, 
it entertained me the whole time. It's a simple fact. Movies are a combination of vision, talent, and determination. Remove any of these three ingredients, and you're bound to have problems. Noel points out how knowing this recipe created cult classics like Russ Meyer's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. If you're running a, a business, you're not going to hire a dishwasher to be your head chef. You're going to get a chef to be the chef, a writer to be the writer, a director to be the director, and, and so on and so forth. Russ Meyer was a, a director that uh, was sent over during World War II, and they gave him cinema training in Hollywood because they needed more directors out there shooting um, out in during World War II. So after he was done, he thought he would go and get a job in Hollywood, but no, you have to know somebody to, to get a job in Hollywood. So he used his training to make his sleazy little films. And one thing he learned how to get the best out of a bad actor is you have them on scene for three seconds or less. As soon as they are done with their dialogue, you cut away to something else. You cut away so you don't get to see the, uh, the awkward parts before and after the dialogue of this person that can act. You just get the dialogue. Therefore, well, this person's a pretty good actor. No, the director knew how to make this person work in his film. And uh, Tommy, being the director, and him also being, you know, the, the actor that's in the movie, definitely seems unhinged during the whole thing. Whether he is a Dracula, or he is an alien, or he's from Poland, like it says in the IMDb, or, or, or whatever, who knows. The fun part about a lot of these things is the speculation. The room travels down a rabbit hole of misadventures. None of these misadventures are more perplexing than the creator himself, Tommy Wiseau. A man so protective about his past, it's difficult to say what separates fact from fiction. Who is he? What's the correct way to say his name? Where did he get his money? Why did he make this movie? These questions only encourage the room's appeal, none more apparent than the line between Tommy and his fictional counterpart, Johnny. Which, you know, his physical appearance is part of the appeal. He's got this long, dyed black hair. Um, he's a banker, so he wears these suits, but they're way too big for him. Um, and has his this accent that you can't even begin to place. I, I, I can't even begin to explain what this accent is, but you have to hear it. As Ryan suggests, the allure surrounding Wiseau has been just as intoxicating as the room itself. There's certain people that you know in life that really overestimate their own talent. Like, it's usually people who sing. They go on about like, oh, this person told me I sing so well. This person said I should be on the radio. And when you hear them, you're like, they're not telling you the truth. I feel like Tommy Wiseau thinks he's this amazing actor. He thinks he's a great writer. And it's like, mm, nobody, you're not. But he's such an interesting person that I feel like people, like he has this allure about him that people are like, yeah, I'll, I'll be in your movie. Backed by the allure of Wiseau in the room, the idea of what defines good from bad is secondary. Among classic cult film buffs, The Room isn't the best worst movie ever. And considering how established names in Hollywood like Sam Raimi, Stanley Kubrick, Jack Nicholson, or Jamie Lee Curtis started among the ranks of B-movies, bad movies can produce great players. As Dixie reminds us, bad movies can take you for a good ride. This movie is so bad, but it's enjoyably bad. It, it's not like they set out 
to make a bad movie. You can tell they sincerely thought they were making a good movie. It's funny because of the randomness of which things occur, both in the dialogue, the action, the plot line. There are probably, I'm sure, people who would just within five minutes turn this movie off. I think you have to have that affinity to really enjoy these bad movies. Um, you know, and there is a distinction. There are movies that are just plain old bad and you can't suffer through. This one is by far, I think, the best worst movie I've ever seen. It Because you're so amazed at that train wreck aspect that's that's taking place you know the acting the storyline everything it all adds up to just this really enjoyable really campy quality i think unintentionally campy quality that this movie has and it's just it's epic and as the room secures itself within popular culture it's not going to challenge any category in established american cinema why so isn't going to win an academy award for the room posthumous in some respects, The Room doesn't need to be honored by established Hollywood. It's already beaten the system. It's become something bigger than anyone thought it could be. It encourages people that sometimes, even the craziest ideas work. Anyone out there that is into film to where they want to start being a director or anything, they need to watch this movie. Because it not only shows you what not to do, but it shows you that if you, you know, you put... You, put it to the grindstone that anything is possible. This was Tommy's dream. He wanted to put this out. And he wanted this movie. And he loves this movie. And you can tell. If you watch, uh, go on YouTube and uh, look up anything that involves him in an interview, he loves all the press he's getting for this and how his movie is finally getting the attention that he believes it deserved from the beginning. And it is a must-see for anyone that wants to get into they know what not to do and that anything is possible. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. 